0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like
1: the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and bikeradar.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. My name is Simon Bromley. I'm a senior technical writer for Bikeradar.com and I'm joined today by Dr. Xavier Disley of UK-based brand AeroCoach and we're going to have a debrief on Alex Dowsett's hour record. We're going to talk a little bit about the tech he used, whether there was anything left on the table, his performance and then maybe a little bit about where the hour record is going to go next. So Xavier, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Great. So, I'm assuming you stayed up to watch this last night as I did. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it's a shame that for those who don't know, it's always a bit of a spoiler, but Alex didn't manage to break the record, unfortunately. He fell just short at uh, 54.555 kilometres, about uh, 500 metres short of Victor Campanart's current record. So a courageous attempt and, you know, chapeau to Alex for giving it a go. But um, what what did you think of the performance, Xavier? Was it an impressive performance or...
0: Yeah, I think I mean obviously doing an hour record, completing it. Um, certainly, when you you know we knew towards like the last third of the third of the ride that it wasn't going to be uh, a record to actually finish it is, is jolly difficult. Um, and we have seen people chuck out records when they're not going the right way because it's a very binary thing, isn't it? If you're not going to break the record, then um, you know then that, <laughs> that you know that's the that's the goal one uh, is out the window. But as he did say there was a lot more behind it than just trying to break the record he got a new pb which is good um uh, he didn't quite get a british record um but he um he did 545 54 and yeah, a half k um, and raised a huge amount of awareness i think there were lots of people online um watching it for his for his charity um and being you know the only elite professional uh, uh, athlete who's got hemophilia i think was you know it was pretty cool the fact that he had no constraints to um, for team stuff, and he was allowed to, you know, wear logos and things. was was great. So um, that was uh, that was that was really good. But in terms of the performance, I think he started off like pretty quick. So he was riding above pace the first fifty laps, um, and then settled for another fifty laps, and then started to kind of like drop down after that. And um, in fact, his average speed, if you, if you ignore the first lap, and then um, when you ride at a constant speed the first lap actually costs you about 100 meters over the entire record so the record's 55.089 which is what victor campanets did so that would mean that he would need to ride at a steady state speed of 55.2 pretty much and that's exactly what he did for 150 laps of out of 218 he averaged 55.2 so um he was on it but if you look at the um if you look at the pacing graph he did start to slow down um you can see it from like lap 100 onwards. That was it, really. Um, and it's very difficult in an hour record to re-accelerate. So if you have a bad patch, it takes you quite a while to get back up to the speed that you used to because accelerating um, back up, you know, a kilometre, an hour or whatever it is that you've lost in an hour record is incredibly difficult. Um, and if you have a bad patch of, you know, 10 laps or so and each lap is half a second slower than what you need to do, you're never going to be riding... Half a second quicker than the original pace if you hadn't been doing it earlier on in the ride. So um, it's a very, very difficult thing to to complete. Certainly if it's slipping away, bringing it back um, is is almost impossible. Um, unlike in a time trial where you've got lots of other things going on, corners and hills and and you know stuff like that where you can make up time in different ways around the track. It's it's very yeah it's very binary. I'd say um, you're either on pace or you're not, and there's not a lot you can do when you're not. <laughs>
1: Yeah and I think as as you said there like it's it's worth mentioning that actually Dowser um has previously held the the hour record he broke it before um back in 2015 i believe just before Bradley Wiggins then su- surpassed his mark but um yeah a courageous attempt and obviously hats off to Alex for having a go let's get into talking about some of the tech he used and i think you know obviously the the main thing that everyone probably saw is his Factor Hanzo uh, bike. Now, I believe that's a modified version of the new road time trial bike that Factor has kind of like soft launched without really releasing official details, but we've seen it at the Tour de France and a, and a few other races. But it had a 3D printed rear end to enable compatibility with you know track dropouts and track wheels and a fixed gear sprocket. Now, why... What's the kind of, what do you think the kind of design decision was behind that? Why not design a kind of, you know, one-off track bike for Dal record? And is it, it, why not make, you know, if you're going to add, make a track bike, why not do a kind of full carbon track bike? What's the, what's the advantage of using 3D printed parts?
0: So the 3D printed parts are really just so that it could be the, the bike, which had already been made and um, had been kind of tested and had been riding already um, in its Road TT guys. So he already had a kind of a position on it that he that he was happy with. Um, 3D printing titanium is is very quick process um, compared to doing carbon moulding. So the bike went through all the same you know ISO testing checks and everything that um, a normal bike would. It was good approved by the UCI and it'll be available for sale at some point. Um, uh, but the rear end was made by Silca. So uh, in order to get everything made real quick, they got access to a titanium 3D printer, um, and so they they made a. Um, a chain stay piece and then a seat stay piece separately so four pieces to make the um to make the whole rear end um, and then that was bonded on um and laid over um, by factor to create you know yeah the basically the track version of the of the bike uh of the, of the of the normal factor hanzo um which as you say isn't quite out yet but everyone's seen it and you know we know what the <laughs> we know what the deal is um and i think that you know it it, it it's a lot easier to Make sure that everything gets UCI approved at short notice if that's required. So um, the fact that the TT bike has already gone through UCI approval means that if when you if all you're doing is just changing the rear end up a little bit, you don't have to worry about running into snags where maybe the head tube's out of spec or the fork's too deep or whatever, you know, um, because that's always a, a risk. So uh, you know, with the UCI, it's not just a simple, you've made a bike and it's fine. It has to get checked and that process takes time. So um, I suspect it's very much a time constraint thing. Um, but also from factors' point of view, if they can just use the same molds for the TT bike, if they make a track bike, you know, I, I doubt they're going to sell loads of these things, um, but there is a bit of a gap in the market for a good track bike. Maybe they will, um, because there are loads out there um, that you can choose from if you want to have a fast track bike. So it's quite nice to be honest, like we don't tend to see new track bike releases, um, so, um, you know, if they do end up sticking on the website, which I think they will do and, um, having, having them available to the public, then at least it gives, it gives the general consumer a new option. So they've got Alex Dowsett to thank for that, um, which is, which is never a bad thing.
1: And what do you think of the kind of, uh, design of the bike in, in general? Like it, in terms of, you know, track bikes we've seen recently, there's, there's kind of, we've seen most brands going down the kind of, you know, like Pinarello and Argon 18 going down the route of having kind of, uh. A fork that runs very very close to the wheel and um, we've also seen the british team using the hope hbt which has a very wide fork where the fork legs are sort of placed in very wide to break the airflow over the rider's leg whereas the factor hanzo has a kind of a wide fork to remove the interaction of between the fork and the front wheel but not wide enough to interact with the legs you know is is that just because it, is that something that works better on the road compared to the track or is it is it just you know there's many ways to achieve the same goal
0: yeah, so I mean, the Hope HPT is kind of outside of that a little bit because it's trying to interact with the rider. So if you're just looking at the wheels um, in spe- in particular, then your um, your 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 design guises and design guides, sorry, from uh, how you're going to make the forks, for example, is going to depend on what wheel you're going to be using in it. So the Factor Hanzo is designed as a road TT frame where it needs to be a bit agnostic as to what wheels they wanted to use, and so um, I don't think that they were. Um, looking to make it only work with one particular wheel set. Um, whereas something like the Pinarello Bolide um, was designed to work with, the, the Bleed HR, so the one that Philip Organa uses, the one that um, in its former version Bradley Wiggins used for his hour record, that's something where they knew they were going to use disc wheels with it. Um, and so they made it, you know, super narrow so that it, it worked with, with one particular kind of wheel. Um, so, yeah, there are different ways to skin a cat and there's lots to, lots to it rather than just, you know, um, fork shape and size. Um, in fact, the seat stays are a real problem for bike design. You know, they're quite difficult to get right. Um, it's something that is uh, really tricky to make aero. So it's it's something that people try and drop the seat stays as much they can to, you know, get them as, as horizontal as possible, or with the hope HPT sticking behind the rider's legs, which is quite a nice way of doing it. Um, uh, and then the frame itself actually looks great. Like I, I like the I like the thinness of the head tube. It reminds me of some of the very old uh, TT bikes used to get back in the day. Um, and, uh, and the, the front end is interesting so that the mono post is actually, um, is part of the fork. So, um, you, it's not like an extendable up and down post, um, that you see on some bikes like this, the, the Cervelo P5, for example, has a, um, kind of like a seat post design where it has a little, uh, little four mil clamp. And then the, the mono post goes up and down inside the fork, um, on the fact though, it is the fork so it's all kind of one piece um and uh yeah you have a little clamp that either goes on top or around it um to to move your aero bars around so um that's a bit different which is cool um it's, it's nice to see i think the bike looked very clean certainly if you looked at it from the front or the side you know it it, it to me it looked like a track bike and i think that's that's quite nice because some of these bikes obviously are road bikes that have just been modified like jens Vocht, he had a Trexby concept which was had the back end chopped off and and put track ends on it. Um, so this this stuff's been done before, you know, it's not like the first time someone's done an hour record with a, a bike that's been, you know, uh, uh, chopped up a little bit. Um, and I think, did Matthias Brandl do it on a Scott Plasma Five with the back ends chopped off? Yeah, yeah, he did. And, so it's a and similar w- kind of thing. Yeah,
1: when Dowsett did his last hour record, he used a Canyon Speedmaster again. Of course, the same. Yes. T- I think uh, Arts used a Ridley Dean w- again, like with was converted for track. I don't think they make a track specific
0: version of that. So, <laughs> not of that particular one. They do the Ridley Dean Arena, I think, but not that. particular Ridley okay. Dean. So um, yeah, it's a it's a common theme that you know. Um, the bikes just get modified from the bikes that the riders normally use, which you'd make again. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it if does. If Riders yeah. used to a particular bike, then um, best to keep with that.
1: Okay, cool. And then so the rest of the bike, obviously, you know, it's a track bike, so there's not actually that many components on it. But he did have some uh, very nice components, and and you know, I suppose as a as a top level pro would do. So he was using Head Volo discs, and obviously he had a front and a rear disc uh shod with vittoria Pista oro tubular tires which are you know very lightweight very supple very fast rolling tires um i believe alex had a choice between a campagnolo ghibli disc wheel set and the head volo wheels And i think the heads are kind of uh, they're slightly wider maybe a sort of more kind of you know road-like design perhaps than the kind of very very narrow campagnolo ghibli wheels and but he said there kind of wasn't much in it it, w- it would is you know is that because of the frame you think
0: yeah, I mean, I don't know what the what the data suggested, but the um, the head wheels uh, about 28 mil wide, um, which is which is massive for a track wheel. Um, so you really have to run a big tire on them um, to get them to work. And then the Campag's, are are, um, you know, they're like 20 mil wide at the brake track. So you run a you run a 19 mil on your front cam pack and you run a 23 on the back. And that's the um, that's the most aero option that we found um, when we've been testing them uh, with the heads. The, the biggest tyre that Vittoria do on the track is a 23. So you just put your 23 on it and that's it. <laughs> uh, maybe a 25 would be slightly better um, because it would it would sit in the rim bed slightly um, slightly nicer, but Vittoria don't make that. Um, the Pistora is a really good tyre. The other interesting thing about that is that if you run the Ghibli's, then you have to run a 19 um for the aerodynamics but um they don't make a piece to oro in 19 mil mm. so you run the old piece <laughs> to speed <with> 19. Okay. <laughs> um, but we haven't done the testing yet because uh, okay. we do some wrong resistance testing we don't know what the difference is between the piece to oro 23 and a piece to speed 19 okay. i suspect not very much because the tires themselves feel very similar um and uh you know the piece to oros probably are a bit quicker they're certainly a lot more expensive um than the normal piece to speeds but um, but aerodynamics of those um, speeds are probably going to outweigh everything. So whatever's most aero is going to win. The wrong resistance will be a smaller factor than the aero um, advantage.
1: Well, I was going to say, I mean, as, <coughs> as, as you say, um L'Avier and AeroCoach do a lot of rolling resistance testing. So if you're into fast tyres, you should definitely check out their website for all of that information. And I was going to ask if you had any idea about, you know, what's the difference between using, say, you know, Vittoria Corsa Speed Road Time Trial tyre and then, you know, a track tubular, for example. Because, you know, it's kind of something that hill climbers and time trialists used to do is run track tubulars for very special events. But of course... You know, they're designed for racing on track, so they really don't have any puncture protection. But is there kind of a meaningful speed gain or is that is that something that's probably not worth doing?
0: I mean it absolutely the the track tires are quicker. We haven't finished the data on the piece story yet, but the um uh the uh, if you ran a course of speed, it would go slower for sure. It would be it would be it wouldn't be a fractions of a watt, it would be more than that. Um so uh you know the 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 there's a very few good tubular track tires out there. Um I mean, the the, the Conti's are quite good, um, but they make a lot of different special versions um, for um, various different people. Um, I mean, Alex was riding Conti's for his last attempt, um, but he was running a special um, compound version of the Conti's, Conti Olympic 111s. Um, and... Uh, they tend to use butyl inner tubes in their tubular tires. Um, so National Federations love using Conti's for racing because they have to keep pumping <laughs> up the tires all the time. It's <laughs> not so good for speed. And <laughs> not, not as good as having a latex in a tube sewn in exactly. So. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Vittorio make one tire and, uh, it's pretty good. I wouldn't run it on the road. I know that people have done in the past and yeah, it's not, yeah, I, I don't think that'd be such a good idea, but you'd go very quickly. Until you punctured. <laughs> until you're punctured. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, okay.
1: Well, that, you yeah, know, that's really interesting because yeah, like you say, like it's a, it's a very niche market and, and, and yeah, the, it's a you know it's probably a sadly diminishing market but i suppose a the a track is one area that kind of tubular still makes sense because you can really take advantage of those high inflation pressures on the track which is obviously something that most people hopefully if you're listening to this podcast and read dot radar.com hopefully you're not pumping up your tires too hard on the road anymore
0: <laughs> yeah i mean there's other companies that do track tires so G Gas makes some nice ones um and they are a bit more handmade, so they can afford to change the width a little bit better. Uh, FMB as well. Um, we found that the G Gas tyres are basically on par with the Vittorias, but they're just a little bit more fragile. So we always recommend people use the Vittoria Pistas, and then the FMBs. Um, again, it's a handmade, handmade tyre company. Um, the we found that they're just a little bit variable in terms of like quality, like they're not always completely round. And um, the G Gas tyres are fantastic. They're pink. Uh, the, the top ones, the Pista pinks are um silk side walls and it's a it's a latex kind of pink tread that's glued on top um and you can even see the seam where the tread meets on one part of the tire which is you know, very cool. concerning um but very cool um yeah. so they're quite quick um but they get very dirty very quickly so they don't look quite as good as a uh, as a black black tread wheel which of course you know makes all the difference <laughs> if <it looks> good.
1: <laughs> well again yeah probably not recommended for your uh, kind of local club 10 then but um very <laughs> no, nice no. if you're racing track so finishing off uh, Alex's bike was some AeroCoach parts, actually. He had AeroCoach yes. Ascalon extensions and a line wing armrests at the front. I think mean, he had the uh, off-the-peg version rather than a kind of full custom 3D printed titanium Fantagio extensions, which are slightly cheaper, but I believe Alex chose those just because that's what he prefers.
0: Yeah, so he's been riding with their Ascalon extensions for a while, um, and the uh, the version that he was using on the track was... Uh, it was three. It was three D printed titanium, but it wasn't full custom for him. He was actually using uh, one of the options that we uh, that we supply, which is the the one we developed for Max Welshide. Um, so Max Welshide's very big, tall uh, uh, road time trialist uh, for Quebec and hatch and he um, needed a very long extension, um, and he wanted to have a, a little finger hook thing to hold the to hold when he was doing TTS. So um, when Alex had a go with them, he was like, "Yeah, yeah, these are <laughs> these are ones." <laughs> These are the ones that will work really well. So um, uh, his previous extensions were just a, a you know a, a, a standard end that didn't have our little finger hook on it. So uh, we um, made him up a set of those, um, and you can see they're quite long as well. Um, so the the extensions made in two parts. You've got three D printed titanium part for the back bit, and then a three um, D sintered part, which is the gripper section. We can alter the shape and length of that. Um, so we uh, yeah used those, which was. Um, pretty good. And as you say, it allows for adjustability. So um, our Vantaggio extensions, which are the full, yeah, the full custom jobbies, three times the price and you can't adjust them once they're set. So if you know exactly what you want, that's great. Um, But, um, you know, there's a a very small advantage, but, you know, if you're, if you're able to improve your position by making adjustments, then that advantage is is lost um, because you you gain the adjustability of the Ascalon. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think they um, the position he, he got them set up and looked really good for him. Um, I think it looked really nice, um, and and crucially, again, everything's UCI legal, so you don't have to worry about you know faffing around with that with with custom bits.
1: Yeah, and so they had a kind of twenty degree uh, kind of rise to the extensions, and I believe the uh, armrests were shimmed to kind of fifteen degrees per UCI rules, but that's this kind of you know uh, upward arms or kind of upward angled arms position, you know, it's increasingly popular now. And it's one that I use on the time trial bike. I, you know, I think it, it may be it's faster. I haven't tested it, but it does feel a lot more comfortable. For me personally, it feels like you you have something to kind of brace your arms against. And it really helps me uh, maintain the aerodynamic position. So I imagine it's perhaps a bit of both.
0: Yeah. And the, the other thing about these, these integrated extensions that you're seeing these days is that it increases the contact points so previously you know you'd have and let's say we'd look at alex's position for his last hour record he had elbows on the pads and he was holding the extensions and his arms were quite flat um, and regardless of whether you have flat arms or not if you just increase the contact area so that you can rest your forearms a little bit more it just again it improves the comfort and as you say if you can hold your own position um then you know that's that's a that's a benefit too because shifting around and and getting out of the bars and, you know, not holding a position correctly is going to cost you a lot. Um, so although there's a, a small benefit from having a nicely shaped extension, much of it is actually for the rider, because the rider's around 80% of the track, making sure that they can maintain the position for longer.
1: Yeah, and I think that's kind of an often <coughs> overlooked part of kind of, you know, time trialing and hour records and things, you know, you think, well, I don't need to be comfortable because you're just riding around in circles and on a track, but actually you do need to be comfortable enough to maintain the aero position effectively because you know you can you can spend all of your money and, and everything on kind of marginal gains that gain you you know half a watt but if you lift your head up for 10 seconds you know that, that could cost you 20 or 30 watts or so right so it exactly. is important yeah yeah
0: absolutely um and, and training and for the you know listeners you know you want to get better at time trials there's just so much to be gain from riding in the position and being able to hold it better than everyone else. Because you can have the world's most fantastic position for a split second and a photographer in a race when you go past them. (laughs) But if you're wobbling around and yeah, as you say, moving your head up and down and uh, you know, shifting on the saddle loads and stuff like that, then it it will it will cost you. So um that's a that's a free, that's a free win, just (laughs) train in the position. Um and if you're able to modify your position to enable you to um, hold it for longer at no expense of aerodynamics of course then um then that will uh that will improve things too
1: and in terms of alex's position like like you just said i thought he looked pretty good he seems to have done quite a bit of work in recent years and his position has changed you know fairly dramatically since he did his uh the last hour record back in 2015 obviously you know it's been a, f- a decent amount of time there but he was kind of you know narrow elbows he had like quite a you know a large amount of drop to the bar his head seemed to be in line with his shoulders that's why he seemed to be turtling and tucking well you know he didn't seem to be leaving too much on
0: the table in terms of position no it, it, I mean it looked pretty good to me um, obviously he, do, he did start shuffling around on the saddle a bit um, at the start of the ride and I think that that um, you know he was doing that a little bit more towards the end. Um, he got out of the bars at about 48k as well. Um, but then, you know, people have done that before in our records, you know. Um, Rowan Dennis did it in his. Um, Jens Fock did it in his. It's not, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't really cost you that much um, for one particular lap if you get out of the bars. Um, I think we modelled it was like a, uh, I think it was Rowan Dennis's record, it was like an eight metre loss or something like that. But if he then allows you just to rest and recover and, just relax some of the muscles that have been pushing on for 45 odd minutes or something, then, then that's absolutely fine. Um, so yeah, he held, I think he held his position pretty well, but he was, he was, he was shuffling around on the saddle a little bit, but apart from that, it looked, it looked pretty good.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a hard effort. (laughs) If anyone's ever tried to do a proper hour on the turbo to find out what their real FTP is, they can maybe appreciate (laughs) how hard the effort is. Um, okay, cool. So finishing off the bike build, he also, Alex also used, uh, he used a rotor AL2 aluminium crankset, which is the kind of relatively affordable crankset, but attached to a power to max power meter, I believe. Oh, he, and he is sponsored by 4i, but I don't think they don't make a track power meter. So that's that's just the way it goes. He um, Obviously, you can't look at your power data during an hour record. So I believe he had his GPS computer just shoved under the back of the saddle just to collect the data. I think the more interesting piece in the drivetrain is the uh, AeroCoach Aiton chain ring in a nice big uh, 61 tooth, I believe, which is... A, Quite a chunky chain ring. Now, tell us a little bit about that, because that's that's quite a that's an unusual chain ring. It's not just a bog standard one, is it?
0: No, no. We spent quite a lot of time uh, development time on that before Tokyo Olympics, um, trying to get it, yeah, get it all ready, and then um, UCI wouldn't let us use it. <laughs> 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 uh, for, for oh, when does when that ever um, happen before? <laughs> well, yeah, quite. Um, but uh, uh, it's, 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 it's UCI legal. Um, there were just some you know, they, were, they were quibbling over. Uh, bits and bobs, but the uh, the the chainring itself is. Um, I mean, we're very we're very proud of it to be honest. The um, the it's hollow construction, so it's it's machined from titanium, which first of all is jolly difficult to do when it's that size because you have to have. Um, if there's any inherent stress in the titanium block that you're machining it out of, then by the time you've done all the machining, because some of the wall thicknesses are a little bit thin in places, the whole thing will warp. Um, and then suddenly you've spent a lot of money on a big block of titanium <laughs> and you've ended up with a little Pringle. Uh, and then there's no there's no point with that. So um, you've got to use very, very high quality titanium um, to do the machining. You go through a cutting tool per chain ring because titanium is very strong, which is the point. So, um, you, you know, it's, it, it just destroys the tools when you try and cut something that size. Um, and then we bond a carbon backer plate uh, onto it, which helps improve the stiffness, but also sort of like, um, smooths off the inside edge of the chain ring. Because a lot of the time with these, um, these rings, you, you have relief plates cut out the inside, um, to save weight. Um, but it then comes at the expense of aerodynamics. So um, it's you know, completely uh, smooth on both sides, but the outer surface is, is shaped lenticular um, to keep the airflow attached over the crank set. So ideally, you want to use a crank set that doesn't have bits sticking out of it. And most track crank sets are pretty smooth these days. Um, so it's got, yeah, it's got a nice shape that. Um, is really wide, so it's as wide as the chain is. It's designed for 18th chain. We, we did do some work with 332 chains, and there wasn't really an improvement there. Um, and 18th is pretty popular on the track, so um, there wasn't, yeah, there, there was no benefit by going to 332 road chain width, which is what a lot of people think is going to be better on the track, but really it's not, it's not really an improvement um so we we shaped the tooth area so that it, the chain ring comes all the way up to the inside of each tooth so it's a little wavy profile and then we hit all the bolts using covers and stuff so we, we really went whole out with it and the whole thing's coated in titanium nitride to make it more
1: slim. well i was going to say that's um, the other thing but the really <laughs> distinctive thing about it is it's kind of gold which really it looks amazing it looks amazing um and you know costs as you say quite a lot of money because of as you've just described the kind of <laughs> the fact that it destroys your tooling and and you know titanium mm. so expensive um but what what's the advantage to using kind of titanium in this way rather than just say you know doing it out of alloy would it would this be possible in cheaper or is this literally just this is the way it has to be done
0: you can't get the coating properly with aluminium so um, to get the tan coating Done correctly, it's got to be titanium,
1: and that um, coating is for is reducing friction. Is that right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, with a big chain room like that, there's there's a lot of links that are touching the the, uh, the teeth, so you want the all of that surface to be as low friction as possible. Um, and uh, stiffness wise, stiffness to weight as well. If you made it out of aluminium, um, you'd have to have something that was like quite a lot heavier. Um, so it's yeah, titanium actually does make a a, a really good. Um, material for this application, rather than just being a bit bling, you know, um, <laughs> we, we we did go all out, and, and you know, it is incredibly expensive. But you know, we don't make, we don't, we don't really make any money on these things. They're just, a, we wanted to make the best one, and this is the best chain ring anyone's ever made, in my opinion. Um, you know, even if, even compared to a normal aero chain ring because we make normal ones that are much cheaper about you know eighth the price or something. and those are made up of yeah,
1: carbon yeah
0: yeah um, which are low friction as well um because carbon's got a, a low frictional coefficient but they're they're flat so um the benefit of a uh, um the most thing the most thing of the uh the Aten chain ring is the aerodynamic benefit of the shape of it um and the wavy tooth and everything um and it gains you yeah i mean everyone's seen the um, blurb i think if you've seen the chamber is 25 centimeters per lap and that 25 centimeters actually uh it doesn't really change depending on what speed you're going um it's still w- within you know yes. certain constraints so within about 55 to 70k it's 25 centimeters and only changes by um you know a few millimeters depending on whether you're going faster or slower um so yeah th- we thought that was a nice way of uh, visualizing the advantage of a small component like that because in terms of wattage it's very little yeah uh you know, i think it's 0.3 percent of the um of the overall uh the overall system but in terms of yeah what actually that means when you're going very very high speed 25 centimeters absolutely loads yeah um, and, and in an and event so, which is
1: literally measured by how much distance you complete that's that's quite a nice a nice way of doing it because you think well 25 centimeters per lap that's not a lot but it doesn't take you know you're doing hundreds of laps that that quickly adds up right so yeah it, it you know it's, it's one of those things that it's like it's, it's kind of you know the ultimate marginal gains but but like you said you know yes it's, it's a 950 pound chain ring but then you know pro riders are spending thousands of pounds on custom aero bars which they then have to bin whenever they change their position yeah. the next time <laughs> so <laughs> yes yeah um yeah so
0: you know yeah, yeah fancy I mean, bike kits I mean, kit. there's a small market for it yeah. so it's always going to be expensive <clears throat> exactly and i think that you know so i mean we've had top riders have been using the world championships and um, one particular top rider who's uh quite fast had one on uh for one of the finals um so i think that people understand the benefits and, and with track stuff because there's not a lot you can put on the bike there's really not a lot of room for upgrade and certainly as bikes become more integrated let's say you have a bike that's got integrated seat post handlebars whatever you what have you got to, up to upgrade your, your saddle <laughs> yeah, yeah. your wheels and your drivetrain so yeah. Um, you know, in, in terms of an expense, then there's. You, it's not like you know you have a, a group set that you want to spend two thousand pounds to um, to stick on the bike as well. So total price is actually not quite as bad as it might first appear, even though the individual unit price is pretty high.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, and then finishing off his drivetrain, he ran a kind of a wax chain. So obviously that's just for kind of reducing drivetrain friction even further something I do, a lot of people do now on the road. So, you know, good idea there. I think he, he had a 13-tooth, uh, he had a, a standard sprocket at the rear. He didn't have an 18 sprocket, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe only a small difference. Um, but, you know, 61, 13, quite a big gear. So good for Alex. His, Alex's cadence did seem kind of more of a, a road cadence rather than sort of a track cadence. I, I didn't count the revolutions per minute, but it seemed relatively low. And I know that that's kind of something that, more people are doing in a sense because you know, certainly from my experience, like if you try and ride at a really high cadence, it makes your heart rate go up, right? So if you can kind of keep your cadence down, you can kind of keep the certainly the rate of perceived exertion seems to go down for me.
0: Yeah. So the thing with cadence around the track and, and when you're doing an hour record is that you always need to gear a little bit easier than you you would expect. So um when you ride around the bankings, um, because of the way the physics works; your wheels speed up, even though your center of gravity kind of travels at the same speed, um, center of mass sorry. Uh, but the um, the the your cadence will go up and down, so your speed varies a lot in between each uh, and the banking and the straight. And that's why our records are actually quite difficult from a power output perspective. A lot of people think, and we, we have masters athletes coming to us saying, "I'd like to do, a, let's say, a masters hour record," or um, and and they haven't really done much track before. And they say, "Well, I can do 300 watts for, for an hour. Uh, what distance will that get me?" And the answer is, "Well, you're not going to do 300 watts <laughs> for an hour, t because because the, the, it's you're effectively it's not, doing a, it's not a steady state effort. No, it really isn't at all. And the g forces you experience certainly when you go very quickly at the higher speeds are pretty significant. So um, it's incredibly fatiguing by doing just you know over unders effectively. If anyone's done that in training and you're you're riding at 20 watts above FTP or 20 watts below, and you just every you know, four seconds, you're doing, you're changing speed. Um, it's it's pretty grim. Uh, and the what that means from the cadence and gearing perspective is that your minimum cadence is going to be uh, the most important thing to gear for because you don't want to get bogged down at any point because then you won't be able to bring it back. So let's say you, you want to aim for a cadence of 105, sorry, a cadence of 100, just for sake of argument, um, for an hour record you should gear such that it goes from probably 105 on the, the um, bankings down to 100 on the straights and then your average will be more like 102 um, so that you don't ever fall into doing like 95 at any point and then suddenly it gets you know bogged down and bogged down and bogged down because as we said earlier it's very difficult to get the distance back once you've lost it so um yeah i think that uh, it was a pretty big gear, 126 and a half inch gear um, for those who work in old money, um, (laughs) which is, which is pretty solid. Um, but, and, and it gives him a kind of a cadence in, in the nineties. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that's, you know, pretty reasonable. Again, he's not someone that does track pursuits or anything. So he's not used to riding 120 RPM for four minutes, um, which is incredibly difficult. If you've never done that,
1: that's, you know, that's one of the things I always think with pursuits is it's not just the fact that they have to ride, you know, 600 Watts for four minutes or whatever it's doing it. Getting off the line <laughs> in a fixed gear and then doing it at that cadence. So yeah, the cadence is is, is, a, is a really interesting thing. And I think yeah, a bit of homework there for any listeners who are thinking about having an hour record attempt is uh, do an hour of over unders, yes. <laughs> four seconds then... on, four seconds off, and then um, and then you can get in touch with Aero Coach to see
0: <laughs> 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 to see how you can do. It's it's, it's very it's very um, it's a very humbling experience doing it. I've got to say, you know the. Um, because we, we certainly, we've seen people um, like go for records and things because uh, we do a lot of work at Newport Velodrome and it's quite a popular place for people to do master's records. Um, and people jump in and say, oh, I'm going to do an hour record. I'm pretty strong. I'll have a go. And it's, it's, it's a really big undertaking, um, physiologically that is. Not, you know, obviously we'll get onto like organising aspects and stuff as <laughs> well, but, um, but f- physiologically um, it is, it's, it's pretty solid and it's very unique to um and it's certainly not doing a 25 mile tt in a nicer environment um it's it's completely different from that um and so yeah making sure that you've got your um your training sorted to be able to deal with those kind of changes in paces is, is pretty important because you can't just sit on an hour uh sit on a turbo for an hour and then think that that's going to be what you do because it absolutely won't be
1: yeah, it's fascinating right so let's just finish off his kit then we'll move on to what he was kind of wearing now he had uh alex had a custom made skin suit by british company Vortech, which i believe cost a few thousand pounds alone if you buy it i you know i don't know what arrangement alex have them he also had their aero overshoes which another decent gain um now i believe that skin suit had an asymmetric design because obviously when you're doing an hour record you're going around the track you're only ever turning left it had trip strips on the arms which are kind of something we've you know quite ubiquitous on top level time trial skin suits now and i also believe it was optimized for a kind of air speed of 43 kilometers per hour because of the altitude so you know what what do you think of that is that a kind of good idea generally the asymmetric design features is that a smart feature or are these kind of you know the kind of marketing claims that many
0: brands love to say <laughs> no no asymmetric is a good idea absolutely um and you know it's it's something that uh, people don't tend to certainly when you're doing an event where you're solo on the track and you're only ever turning left um let's say you're doing a sprint event on the track and you're kind of going up the banking a bit or you're doing a madison and there's a bit more kind of left and right involved um you are generally turning left though <laughs> but the um but uh, but no asymmetric is is not a, it's not a bad idea for um for a one-off custom you know Track suit, so um, yeah, that's absolutely the right thing. And then, yeah, what you're saying about the the airspeed um, they're testing out, the Reynolds number will change. The so Reynolds number is kind of like the uh, determines how the airflow moves over the body. And obviously, you know, air at 1900 meters is not the same as air at zero meters, which is why he did it at 1900 meters. Um, and so there are calculations you have to do to uh, establish what the um, how the airflow will behave. So when, when you're testing this kind of thing in the tunnel, um, obviously you can't move your wind tunnel up to 1900 meters to see where the FO is going to behave there. So you change the wind speed to achieve the same Reynolds number, um, uh, to be able to establish whether the suit that you're testing at sea level is going to then perform at altitude. Um, so yeah, lots of little, lots of little bits and bobs to it. Um, absolutely.
1: And a skin to, you know, just generally, I'm sure that, you know, the, the kind of awareness of this is growing, but it, it, I often have in my head that the skin suit is almost more important than the bike because obviously the rider is you know causing the vast majority of the drag. So I think the biggest gains in time trialling in the last kind of decade have probably come from skin suits rather than bikes.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that um, the the... That more more companies have realized this as well so a lot more uh, r&d has been pumped into skin suit design and fabric design in particular um and uh, and it, yeah it's nice to see that you know people have uh, general consumers can realize that actually from a pounds per watt ratio point of view like okay fine this skin suit is pretty expensive but if you get like a i don't know two, three, 400 pound skin suit might sound like a lot of money um but compared to a bike frame as you say compared to buying spending, a factor hanzo <laughs> well, yeah quite yeah. yeah um then you're not spending sort of five six thousand on pounds on a special track frame um but you're getting a really good benefit so spending time on uh, you know that's like you know what's that a fraction of the cost of the, absolutely of just the frame itself yeah um and you'll get as as many improvements because as you said before the ride is 80 percent of the track so um, you know, you, let's say you cover, we, we give this, this example of um, shaving your legs. Uh, everyone knows that shaving your legs is uh, preferred <laughs> uh, <laughs> from an aerodynamic point of view. Um, but when you do the numbers and you work out how, how much it is, it, it can be a very, very big proportion. And people are like, oh, uh, it's, it's not going to be that much, is it? And it's like, well, think about if you covered your bike frame in hair. <laughs> you'd think that would be slower, right? And the bike frame surface yeah. area is a lot smaller than a pair of legs in clean airflow banging up and out either side of the down tube. Um, and then when you start to think about that, okay, fine. Well, if you covered the bike in a fabric, you'd think that that would probably be, you know, it would change the aerodynamics. And you think about the surface area of the rider and then suddenly it starts to make a bit more sense. Um, but, uh, but I think people are very, very in tune with that now. Um, people know that skin suits are a big thing. Um, and even if you don't get a very expensive skin suit, Making sure that it fits you is dead important. So there are no, you know, wrinkles or baggy bits or you know, saggy arm cuffs or, or whatever. Making sure it fits you is, 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 you know, you're 90 percent of the way there if you can have a skin suit that's got no, um, no baggy bits on it. And then the posh ones add the extra, extra bit on top of that.
1: Yeah, and all of this stuff is apl- applicable to kind of just general road riding as well, right? Like, it, it, you know, if, if you're, you know, a road rider doing a sportive, you know, spending money on getting good fitting kit vastly outweighs spending money on a new bike if you're looking to just you know go a little bit faster
0: absolutely yeah absolutely your position and the clothing that you wear is uh, uh, both very low cost ways of improving your speed on the bike no matter what speed you go to be honest um, and what level you are
1: so now final piece of kit that Alex had was his HJC AdWatt time trial helmet it's a kind of a short tail helmet kind of maybe in the mold of, you know, the cask Bambino and, or the, the original cask Bambino. Now I've watched all of Alex's uh, YouTube videos on his, on his YouTube channel, on his kit, which have been very informative. Worth a look if you're into that kind of thing. And he said that this helmet was the optimal for kind of his position on the bike, but there's a little bit of, you know, it is also the helmet that he's sponsored by, but then, you know, has he just optimized his position around the helmet? You know, is there anything left on the table? I wonder there, because he has at times used a POC tempo, which has kind of come in and out of fashion recently. It seems to be going out of fashion again now. <laughs> um, but, you know, the helmet, you know, first of all, like, I, I've i never tested this helmet. You know, is, is that a kind of decent all-round helmet? And, you know, what kind of gains, you know, is, was there anything left on the table there, do you think?
0: I mean, without seeing the numbers of what he tested, I don't know, but he, I mean, I, I ride that helmet. It works pretty well on me. Um, I've used, uh, I, have, I have a couple of different ones I use depending on the weather because the visor <laughs> steams up a little bit for me. Um, and I wear contacts, so that's a real issue. Yeah. I can't see where I'm going. Um, uh, and one of, our, uh, one of our team-sponsored riders uses an HHC and that works really well for her as well. Um, and we're both very different shapes. Um, it's actually surprisingly good. Like it, even when on a rider where it doesn't look good, it performs pretty well, um, and it's not a new helmet, although they do have a new version of it, which I haven't tested yet. They've changed the vents uh, slightly, um, so probably need to give that a go. Um, but uh, but the coverage of the visor is quite nice. Obviously, that's not a problem for, for an hour record, um, but out on the road is, is pretty good. So actually, even though it's a helmet where you'd think looks like a bit of a bucket, very sharp, you know, sharp transition from the back of the helmet to the shoulders, and often there's a bit of a gap there, um, it actually can perform pretty well, and the problem with the POC Tempo, as I, you know, I've, we've consistently said this, is that when it's good, it's good, but when it's not, it's not. And if you are not sure that you're holding it in the right place, um, then it can be really, it can be really, really bad. Um, and certainly for outdoor riding as well, when you're moving your head around, I don't recommend it as a road time trial helmet because um, the position where it works really well is not a very safe riding position, um, and you know as you say sometimes helmets come in and out of fashion which is um just purely a function of the fact that it's very difficult to um every single rider to know which helmet is best for them you've got to do some error testing or whatever so um you tend to choose what the best riders are using um because obviously if they're going quick it can't be a terrible decision <laughs> um no one's riding around doing tts and winning world championships with a road helmet on so no exactly. um, And most of these riders have been doing testing of their own. So um, I can understand why people follow trends because um, otherwise there's, you know, how else are you going to know unless you do things like error testing? So, um, but yeah, no, the HGC is actually not bad. Um, you'd, You'd think it would be terrible, but actually um uh, the yeah
1: it's not the, that i would think it would be terrible so, yeah. necessarily i just i think <laughs> we had you know sort of when wiggins and froome were winning their first tour de France obviously we had the cask bambino and that was really popular because like you said it just you know they were they were winning all the races at that point so then every every helmet manufacturer said oh we have got to make a short tail time trial helmet and they really you know that really went away from the kind of really long tail jiro time trial helmets we'd seen say during the the armstrong era or whatever and um and then there was a kind of shift the other way again where tails started to get longer and obviously Laser had the, the Wasp TT helmet, which had a really, really long tail. But now we've kind of seemed to be settling in the middle where we have, you know, the cask Bambino Pro Evo, for example, which is used by Ghana, which is kind of like a you know mid-length tail. Giro has its mid-length tail helmet specialized. Their, their S-Works helmet also has a mid-length tail. So it was kind of interesting to see HJC release, as you say, what is, you know, a very kind of, truncated tail design but presumably
0: you can still make it work yeah absolutely um i don't think you necessarily have to kind of build the position around the helmet um i mean i was using I was i using before i was using a cat-like helmet which incidentally was the one that alex used for his previous hour record attempt um and that worked that works really well on me but the visor does steam up and i have to hold my head in a particular place otherwise it doesn't work when i swatched the hjc um it was just a bit more i could kind of hold my head a little bit higher if I needed to. So for a road time trial, I can look where I'm going a bit better, which is great. Um, and yeah, convenient. And uh, and I thought that the visor wasn't going to steam up, but then, you know, uh, as luck would have it. Um, so so I think that, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where things go from there. Helmets are definitely one of those things where, you know, a company is not going to come out with five different time trial helmets. No. Although Cask have got a yes. pretty solid offering now. They've got the Mistral, the Bambino, the Bambino Pro Evo, and the Beluga. So, um, you know, for a Cask sponsored team like Ineos, then um, they've actually got quite a nice little um, suite of helmets that they can choose from. But you're because right, you that want... that's, yeah, that's very rare. Giro, specialised, bell, yeah, you know. One helmet. One helmet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what you want is to have a, a, a four or five different helmets that you can then give to the riders or, or interchangeable pieces that you can, like the old Giro selector, where you can, um, you know, have the right helmet for each person. Um, And, you know, we've we've done this with, um, and there's still a lot of pushback when we work with like national federations and things like that, who have a little bit more leeway over that um, sort of thing, where we say, look, just use use the right helmet for each rider. I don't care if your team pursuit team doesn't look great because everyone's riding different helmets or whatever, but you'll go quicker. But that is Um,
1: something we, I think you're right, actually, that's something we saw. I think GB were using different helmets on their different riders this year and Denmark also did that, but I believe Australia are all stuck with the cast mistral. So, yeah. some people are getting yeah, it, I suppose,
0: and some people. Are. There's a there's a very low chance that every single rider on your team is going to be optimized for one particular helmet. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just a if people are chasing marginal gains and things, helmets are actually quite a big one because they're in clean airflow and they affect how the airflow goes over the moves over the rest of the rider's body. So um, making sure the helmet's right is is really good. Um, but most most helmets these days like are, are decent. You know, it, it's because of the ability for the people that matter so the pro cyclists to do things like error testing it's very difficult for a company to come out with a product that's actually terrible um because they'll get shown up pretty quick so um you know as a consumer even though there is quite a lot of options um most of the helmets are okay so um it's not a not a terrible problem no (laughs) um, compared to in the past where some helmets were really
1: and i think you're right that things you know things like being able to to see up the road are also quite important for consumers so it is definitely worth considering considering a vision as well i mean that's one of the things that i you know i have a bambino pro evo and one of the things i really like about it is the, is the great forward visibility that you get with a helmet like that so because that means i can really tuck my head down and still see where i'm going so because yes like i i have you know i have also got a POC Tempor, which i kind of got because you know it looks cool it's kind of more of a museum piece i don't really wear it because i'm not <laughs> sure i can i'm not i've never had it tested and so i just worry it'd be slower but the visor on that is uh, is not as kind of big it doesn't extend above your brow as much and so if you've got your head down in that kind of like fast position where i assume it works then the forward visibility isn't great so yes it's definitely something to think about right so that's all dalsey's kit obviously all very very nice kit and he put in a really big effort didn't quite make it but a valiant effort is is it do you think he just didn't quite make it perhaps because of the effects of altitude or maybe they just miscalculated what they were capable of is there anything you could have kind of put your finger on to say like oh this is where it went wrong or is it just generally a case of not quite having enough
0: i mean it's very difficult to say isn't it though there's all sorts of stuff that you know could have happened he could have um you know felt a bit ill on the day so i mean if you if you think of the um the the difference between um what he did and what he needed to do um it's just 10 watts so i'm sure we've all done a if if you've got a power meter we've all done a, a bike ride where we've wanted to achieve a particular target and we've been 10 watts off yeah it's uh, not much an is interval it? session yeah. or an endurance ride or a race or whatever um and yeah 10 watts isn't a lot um so i think that you know that 10 watts could be from anything and, and you can speculate yeah. all you want about yeah. how you do it. I think from, from a um, the, the objective uh, uh, look at it and what, what I tend to do with these hour records is pacing. So if we look at the pacing, it was pretty good. Um, and, you know, what you should do uh, for an hour record, um, you know, the, the textbook way of doing it, my textbook way of doing it, <clears throat> is that if you're physiologically capable of breaking the record, and if you've got to this point by setting everything up, then you should be um you the 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 best chance you have of breaking it is to sit exactly on record pace for the entire ride and then lift it at the end if you try and go too hard to start then any like drop off in speed at the end you're not in control of that drop off whereas if you can be in control through the entire race and then just raise it and you break the you know, one meter or something yeah. at the by the end of it. it doesn't matter. Like no, that's all you need. Goal, goal one is break the record. Yeah. Right? That's always, that's always goal one. You know, goal two can be put the record on the shelf if you want. <laughs> but goal one is break the record. So sitting on record pace and then lifting it at the end is the um the is the the guaranteed way of breaking it if you're capable of doing it on that day. Um, and he pretty much did that. Like he started a bit quick. The first twenty-five laps, I'd say, were um, faster than they needed to be. He did a few laps over fifty-six k an hour, which, which wasn't really very necessary. Uh, but then he settled in, um, and by about lap one hundred, he was pretty much, you know, doing everything he needed to do. He had the odd lap that was, you know, dipping below fifty-five k um, up to that point. But for the first hundred laps, he was on it, um, and then it started to um, he started to go a little bit slower. And as we said, as we said earlier, it, it's it's very difficult to get the time back if you've lost it. So um, by lap 150, even though he'd done, um, you know, a fair few laps by that point, about 25 laps under record pace, he was still on 55.2 um, average uh, because he did bank the time. If we exclude the opening lap, that is. Um, and then then after that, he started to, you can see from, um, from his pacing that he slowed down, then he had a little surge, and then slowed down, and then surge, and then slowed down, and then a, a final surge to finish um and uh and i think that you know from a from a pacing perspective he did pretty well um he didn't go too fast to start you know he wasn't doing 58k or anything like that um he did a a very fast um second lap or third lap um and then after that kind of settled into the 55s um 55k an hour which was um what he needed to do so um i think that yeah all sorts of things i mean 10 watts Atmospherics can get you ten watts. um Absolutely. So things outside of his control could have um could have got him that. Um, and it is not easy them, to just so. rock
1: up at altitude, is it? it? You know, it's not as simple as yo well, you know, I go to altitude, I therefore go x x faster, is it? It, it's, it can be more complicated than that because the body reacts to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if we if we look at altitude, so it's about yeah, one point nine kilometers, about two thousand meters up. There, the difference between um an acclimatised athlete and a non-acclimatised athlete, you'll you'll see somewhere around a 10% drop-off in power output at that kind of altitude. So uh, bearing in mind what we're saying about um, our records taking power off you anyway because of the way that it's micro-intervals, you don't see people doing... 450 watts for an hour record, doesn't happen. I mean, you know, Chris Bourbon did quite well when he did his. He did a, a fair few watts for that. But it's very it's very rare. So you tend to see much lower powers than you would do on the road. So Victor Campanella, Alex Dalser, whatever, would do higher power. And Ganner, if he goes for it, would do higher power for a road TT than he would for an hour record. But the difference between being acclimatised and not acclimatised uh, to, the, to the altitude is around about 4%. And in this instance, that's about 15 watts so if you think about and and he you know lives in in Andorra and he was there for a couple of weeks before he went out so um, he'll probably be on the better end of that Um, but timing it is quite tricky and yeah he's not an altitude
1: native either he's from essex which is distinctively not
0: altitude (laughs) (laughs) yeah quite And, and and also the the time that you spend out beforehand and when you go to altitude different things happen and so um, your diurnal rhythm and how good you are at different points of the day is just a little bit more skewed if you haven't lived there for sort of five months or something. Um, but, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to stay there for as long as you wanted. So I think he went out like about a week before and that seemed like a, a relatively good, from a higher altitude. Um, and that seems like a, a relatively good way of doing it. But, but again, these external factors, these atmospheric factors really do have an impact. And yeah, 4%, 14, 4% swing in power between, you know, being acclimatized and non acclimatized, 15 watts, and then suddenly he's 250 meters over the record if, if it had swum the right way mm. for him.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because we think of the hour record as the kind of like the ultimate event that you can control everything. But of course, you know, you can't. <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's like, you know, when Wiggins did his, there was much talk of the kind of atmospheric conditions that he got on the day. And we, you know, we were chatting just before we started recording. But you, you know, the UCI mandates that you have to pick a date and a time. And I believe Alex got, you know, fairly decent atmospheric conditions for the altitude he was at. But I, I'm sure, as you said just then, like if he had got a perfect day, maybe he
0: could have broken the record. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you can get the um, so the air densities that he would, he would have experienced on the day could have been better. It could have been a lot worse. Um, and. That's the thing where, you know, with an hour record, it is kind of a bit of a roll of the dice. Um, but the UCI do say that you have to have everything set up for a date and a time and trying to, you know, have like three different days or something consecutively is, is pretty much impossible under the um, UCI regulations for our record. Um, from a logistical point of view, very difficult as well. So we haven't seen anyone do that. You know, Wiggins had a day and a time and a slot on Sky Sports or whatever it was. Alex Dalsett had a day and a time and a slot on BBC Red Button, and that's that's it you know Um, and so what you try and do is you try and control once you know that that's happening you try and control everything around that as much as possible so whether that's using a velodrome where you can be in control of the heat uh, because Mexico you can't really um, you're not as in control of the uh, of the heat as you would be um, at a velodrome like let's say Newport in the UK um, where you could just bang the heaters on um, and what would that do what would that do for you so, if you did, if you increase the heat, um, I mean, Wiggins did this for his uh, his record, but you increase the heat, that reduces the air density. So, um, it makes the air less dense and it makes it easier to um, push through the air. It does make it harder. harder.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, anyone air. who's, again, anyone who owns a turbo will know that increasing the heat exactly <laughs> not always the best
0: thing to do. So, when Wiggins yeah. did his hour record, I was tracked, uh, I was um, at the track, and halfway through, it was very hot. Uh, we had a temperature sensor going, and it was, like well over 30 degrees um, and then halfway through someone realized that actually it was probably going to be a little bit too hot by the time we got to the end so they opened some doors and you could see the, the temperature plummeted um so the second half of his ride um he slowed down if you look at his pacing he got a bit slower in the second half some of that was going to be actually due to the fact that the the temperature had dropped because i think someone freaked out that he, uh, the it got a little bit too high um so for an hour record like if you, can, if you can handle it at 30 degrees, then that's actually quite good, um, you know, that, that does reduce the air, d- let's say compared with 25 degrees, that does reduce the air density like pretty significantly. Um, but again, it comes at a physiological cost. So if you're used to the heat and you've been, uh, you know, riding in hot conditions, like Victor Campanek, for example, he spent um, two months in Namilia, uh, at crazy heat uh, and high altitude in order to prepare um, because he knew he was going to go to Mexico, which I thought was um, pretty good way of doing it. Um, so again, like you can control some aspects of these atmospherics, but not all of them. Um,
1: well, yeah, I wanted to come on um, to Victor's to Victor's record actually, and I think you know one of the things that's kind of come out of this uh, attempt is that I think Victor Campanart's record has you know has been buffed up quite a little bit and uh, quite a bit, sorry, and you know this puts quite a lot of shine on his record because you know obviously. Before Victor set the record, he he had been a World Tour pro, but perhaps not of the calibre of a, a of a Bradley Wiggins. And you know, I think there was a lot of talk that oh, you know, he we went to, he went to altitude, and that's why he beat the you know beat the Wiggins record. But you know, clearly, his is a pretty decent record, right? And I think I'm sure a lot of anyone who was interested in having a go at it is probably sat up and thought, well, maybe not quite so easy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the altitude thing, I don't think, is as much of a gain as people, people realise. Uh, well, not people realise, as people think. Um, you know, the, the track surface has a big impact on it. Um, and, like, we've done stuff where we've gone around different tracks to see, you know, which would be better and, and which wouldn't. And to be honest, a really good sea level track where you can control the temperature, um, which has a nice surface, is, is very, very, very fast. Um, and you can see that with some of the times that are being done, and, you know, world championships and, uh, you know, and records that are being set um, by people doing, you know, rides. Because, well, you know, uh, Roubaix Velodrome, I think Berlin was pretty quick um, not too long ago. Um, and then uh, I think, I can't remember which track it is in Australia, but one of the Australian tracks is, is dead quick when the temperature's right. Um, so same in the New Zealand track. So it's, it, the track surface has a very big impact on it and uh, going to altitude kind of gets you a benefit because the air's less dense, but then suddenly you start throwing in some of these kind of more uncontrollables, where your acclimatization percentage is gonna be variable. So if you fall on the right side of that, then that's fantastic. If you don't, then you might've lost most of the benefit that you would've done. And from a logistic point of view, going to a high altitude track is a pain. And if you lose 1% in power because you've been stressed out your brains, uh, trying to travel to a foreign country and set everything up because everyone who goes to Mexico says that it's just not as easy to to manage. Um, then uh, then that'll that'll cost things too. So um, I think that there's 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 a good argument to be said for using uh, a fast local in inverted commas. Um, if you're pro trying to do an hour record, then you probably do have a local track uh, that you can control and you can train at, and that you know where everything is and all of the commissaires are easy, easily on hand, and things because um, sea level European tracks tend to be a little bit more set up for that sort of thing, rather than having to ship in timing people on the day and anti-doping all of that. Everyone seems to be a little bit more, uh, yeah, a little bit more local. So I'd say there's an argument for not doing it altitude from that perspective, but if you get everything right, then altitude is a benefit. There's no doubt.
1: Yeah, and it's, and I think as you've just kind of mentioned there, the, the logistical part of organizing an hour record attempt is not to be uh, underestimated and you know i know alex and his his wife chanel and his team have had to kind of organize a lot of this attempt themselves and as you say that adds an additional stress to the training stress and you know the stress of having to do the event itself um so it, it is really tricky, and I think that's why, you know, when, when we think of, you know, all the, the great time trialists that there are out there, you know, we obviously we have Ghana, Wout van Aert, um, Remco Venepoel, um Stefan Kung, you know, countless, you know, but you think, oh, who of them would give it a go? But it's not as easy as, as well, maybe it's not as easy as just rocking up at your local track and and saying, oh, I'd like to have a go at the hour record. Yeah, yeah,
0: quite. I think you can't just book an hour of track time and say you want you want to give it a go. Um, I think that uh, if you, it, it depends where the support's coming from and where the, because the, um, the, an hour record's a very interesting one, isn't it? Like a, a, pro, a rider on a pro team is, the, is a rider who's going to be able to break an hour record. Um, how much the pro team are going to want you to um, mess about with your schedule to enable you to do that um, is up for debate, isn't it? You know, Stefan Cook used to be a fantastic pursuiter. I'm pretty sure he could jump on the track and do a very good time. A uh, very good time, very good distance. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, but he, you know, I, I just I I just not sure yeah. that Francis um, aren't interested. In it, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe they would be, but it would be very much um, pandering to, uh, to to that you know desire to do it rather than actually this is going to advance the team. And if you're being paid by the team, um, then you know there should be. Less pandering, <laughs> I think. So for Alex to step up and do it himself, I think is very commendable. Um, because yeah, organising one of these things is very difficult, um, uh, and you know he doesn't have like a, uh, a whole host of people sorting everything out. So um, that does add to the add to the stress. It allows you to control some aspects of things, which is good. Um, so maybe that outweighs it, depending on you know what compromises you would have had to make if your team was organising things. Um, but, uh, but again, you know, it, as with all these things, there, there are compromises to be made in, on both sides.
1: And lastly, sort of, let's have a look at, a very quick look at what 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 might be next. I think the only person who's kind of given clear intentions that they are kind of testing f- for an hour record attempt is um, the current World Time Trial Champion, Filippo Garner, now obviously, you know, a pretty superlative track rider as well. And... You know, given his record on the road in terms of compared to athletes like Campanats and Dowsett, and I think most people would be pretty confident that he could do a pretty decent distance in the hour record. But as we've kind of just spent the whole last hour or so discussing, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So, you know, do you expect him to have a go? And if so, you know, what kind of distance might you think he'd be capable of? So, um, I mean, he's
0: he's, he's going to do it, isn't he? I hope so. Uh, I really hope so. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think everyone wants to see that. And I think that um, that adds to the, um, you know, that, that adds to it, doesn't it? You know, if people want to see it, then it's more likely to, to happen because cycling is a spectator exhibition thing, isn't it? You know, it's not. The reason why professional cycling exists is so that people can watch it and enjoy it. Um, so I expect that... Um, that 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 will probably happen. Um, in terms of what he can do, uh, I imagine he'll go very quickly. Uh, I think that the um, you know the the he's 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 got the he's got the track record on the track, and I think that's the you know one of the, the main things is that it doesn't. Although it appears from his performances certainly at the Olympics that juggling the two is 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 tricky. Um, you know, it's not easy to. Um, jump from track to time trial uh, people think it's the same because you look like you're in the same position but in terms of the, the physiological demands the training that you do and all of that it is actually quite different um, and you know you do have to compromise on your road TT performance if you're just training for track and vice versa um, you know if you're just training for road TTs it doesn't make you a good time, uh, a track rider, pursuiter. Um so there's definitely like you know um, if you wanted to go for it you'd have to um, block out some time to do it um, I think he, he publicly said he wanted to do it after the Giro next year. So maybe he does the Giro and then has a bit of a break. But that break is him doing some track work, having had a big block of endurance at the Giro. And then he goes for it. In terms of what he can do, I mean, you know, you, you put numbers in um, and for him to do 56k an hour uh, over the whole thing. So if we take away the first lap, which costs you about, um, uh, you know, 100 meters or so. Um, he'd have to have good air density, he'd have to go to a very quick track to do it. That's just over 16 second laps, um, so 16.04-ish uh, per lap. Um, bear in mind, Alex was aimed for 16.3s, so uh, 0.3 per second per lap. And if he's got a decent CDA, uh, sub 0.2, so, you know, 19 something, then he'll need 450 plus to do it um which is quite a lot of power it is but he
1: does he does do a lot of power he does he's a bit yeah um, he's yeah well yeah exactly he does do a lot of power and and i think i suppose like you say as someone who is um has that track pedigree maybe that's that's more realistic for someone like him than someone who as you say has come over from a roadside and thinks well i can do 450 for an hour on the road it's not as you say it's not the
0: same yeah exactly um i mean i think that you know, we can't forget that Chris Boardman's done this.
1: Yeah, yeah <laughs> yes. 50, yeah.
0: 56.375 is really, I think, the record that someone who's a track rider who knows the history and stuff, if they're going to go for the hour record, is going to want to break. Um, but Boardman had a CDA 183 or 184 or something when he did it, and he did 440 watts. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was just the world's most unbelievable performance. He said himself that it was just such a perfect day. That the second he started the ride, he was just waiting for it to end because he knew he was going to do it. And he was, you, you know, when you're on a yeah, great date, yeah. you know everything's perfect. I mean, I haven't so had one of just... those days in a
1: long time, but I do know what you're talking <laughs> okay. about. I
0: think I had one of those days back in 2015, well,
1: according to my Pammy. There you but go. It's, it's so memorable it's not... <laughs>
0: that you remember it six years later.
1: Well, it's because oh, like, I haven't hit that power. You know what I mean? Like that's the problem with a, a problem with a power meter. I mean, it's another conversation. But a problem with a power meter is that once you've had your your best day, you're just you're reminded how much time, you're losing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, had a, I
0: had a particularly good one this year, and it just sticks with you. And like you, you know, you know, you're on for it, and you feel great, and you're just right on the limit. But you know that you're not overextending yourself. Having that on the day of an hour record is quite something. Uh, and so, I think that yes. The, um, for someone to do fifty-six point, you know, three-seven-five, uh, as well, that's doing a, a standing start as well. And do do you think that's kind of feasible? Oh, given yeah, yeah. you know, obviously,
1: Boardman would have done that in the Superman position, but that's feasible within the current UCI regulations.
0: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, a CDA one-eight-three for a rider of his size isn't ridiculous. I mean, it's that's that's what you can hit with the current UCI regulations. No problem at all uh, with track kit, um, and you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not outside the realm's possibility for um, someone like Ghana to do over 56.5k. Um, I think that I'd, I'd expect him to probably not go for it unless it was going to be a big, chunky distance. Um, because I think if Filippo Ghana jumped up on track and did 552 kilometers an hour for an hour, I don't think people would be... As in, like super impressed. Yeah, and it's a bit harsh, but I know is, what you mean. <laughs> is, is an event where you you're you're doing it to uh, you know I think if Ghana were doing it, it would be to impress people.
1: Yes, um, I think I, I think Wiggins had a bit of that as well, didn't he? I think a lot of people expected him to step up, step up, and sort of put put the record on the shelf for a decade, but it you know it just didn't quite happen for you know reasons kind of out of his control, I expect. But um, yeah, I I I, I agree. Like especially you know with Ghana coming from. Inios Grenadiers, and you know, they've got the big budget and you know, the big organizational things. Like people are people that the expect I mean, you know, we're here talking about it. We're already setting the expectations above Chris Boardman. So
0: <laughs> well, quite, yeah. I mean, as as I said, I think I think it would be um it would be, I think he'd find it disappointing if he went one meter further than than Victor's record. Um, so if he goes for it, I'd expect he be shooting for 56k. And then if you're shooting for 56k, why not see? What if you can, you can beat Bourbon's yeah. record yeah exactly um but what I think was really nice about um alex's record is that he he finished it and he did a record that wasn't a, a, a record beating performance and we haven't seen people go and and try and 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 not get the record um that they were originally aiming for yeah, absolutely um, for a while now there was a, there was a glut of people. Yeah, doing it. I remember so had, Bob Bridge had Thomas a go. Thomas really Bobridge, didn't quite. Gustav get Larson.
1: Yeah, and and I agree. Like it takes a lot of courage to if you're not sure you're going to absolutely smash it. It takes a lot of courage to go for it with a small margin of error. And um, yeah, massive hats off to dowsett and his team because you know, it was a, it was a really engaging watch and obviously I'm sure he'll be, you know, disappointed, but he has already held the hour record. I don't think, I I don't think this is diminishing his Palmares at all. I think, yeah, it absolutely, you know, it took a lot of courage to do that. So yeah, hats off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, he's raising awareness for his charity, which I think that from a, from a success point of view, was it success for that perspective? Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. You know, and and I, I really liked how he was engaging with people beforehand, doing lots of videos and things because um, we haven't seen that with no, that, of yeah, and definitely. Anyone who goes for one in the future, let's say it's Stefan Kung or you know art or Ashton Lambie or you know whatever, um, it would be lovely to see you know lots of behind the scenes kind of this is how we're approaching it um, perspective rather than just this is the day I'm doing it. Make sure you tune in um, because it makes it more of an engaging ride and engaging event as a one-off.
1: And it definitely makes my job as a journalist easier if they give me all the information up front about what they're using. And I don't have to chase around random, you know, helpers and soigneurs saying, Oh, what chain is that? And oh. yeah. <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Well, we'll leave it there. That's been fascinating. I think. And if you did enjoy this, don't forget to give our podcast a thumbs up, or a subscribe, or a like wherever you get your podcast. Of course, leave us a review or a comment on the article on BikeRadar.com. And as always, thanks very much for listening, and thank you, Xavier.
0: No problem at all. Thank you for listening to the BikeRadar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about, or more
1: news and views on cycling, check out BikeRadar.com.